As the cost of living crisis bites and the Conservative Party chooses our next Prime Minister, what should the priority be for a government that truly wants to level up the UK? This is the Manchester Wheatley from the Mill. Hello and welcome to a Sunday episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. It's just me this weekend, there's no Daryl, but what we do have is a brilliant guest, Diane Coyle. She is a leading economist. She is a professor of public policy at the University of Cambridge. And she is a bit of an expert in the kind of issues that levelling up is throwing up. How do you make towns of deindustrialized be more productive? How do you bring good paying jobs back to cities? How do you help that people's quality of life rise in a time when there are fewer and fewer well-paying jobs and there are more and more industries that are low paying? She is our guest this weekend on the podcast and I'm going to be asking her about all of those issues as well as her knowledge of the treasury, how it works and why we need to rewrite the rule book of how the treasury invests in this country. Diane Coyle, thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure. I love reading The Mill, as you know. (laughs) You've been reading The Mill for quite a while, and I've been hoping for quite a while to speak to you about um, the economics work you do. And then over the weekend, I was reading Sebastian Payne's book about the Red Wall. And in one of the chapters, he quotes you and he he basically says, no one has done more sort of thinking about the the what's been happening in these kind of red wall constituencies in these areas of the country that have suffered deindustrialization that have been left behind by the knowledge economy as uh, Diane Coyle has so I thought okay that's my prompt I better actually speak to you now um in that book you speak to Seb um about lots of different ideas in, in quick succession but one of the ones that was interesting to me was this I, this term that I've come across in other writing that you've done called about intangible assets so you've been an economist um, for a long time you've been an advisor at the treasury you've you've been the economics editor of a, a national newspaper the independent but it seems in your work this particular line of thinking about how the economy has changed and it has become about these intangible assets, this knowledge rather than sort of physical capability, that's, that's kind of been key to your work, hasn't it? Can you tell us a little bit more about that concept? It's um, actually 25 years this year since I published my first book about this called The Weightless World, which was a way of trying to make vivid this idea that the value that we create in the economy is almost entirely now intangible stuff. And that's partly the shift towards services, everything from haircuts to accountancy and financial services, and partly that um, the value in material things lies in stuff like design and after-sales service and uh, customer relations and all of those, again, intangible aspects. So um, just before we started speaking, I'm literally putting together a spreadsheet going back to 1970 for the UK economy looking at how much material have we used relative to GDP, the standard measure of economic output. And I'm not quite finished, but it's fallen by something like fivefold in that period. Um, So we're creating more and more economic value. Employment's obviously increased enormously and um, average levels of income over that period since 1970. Um, But the amount of stuff hasn't gone up. And the way you think about What are the jobs that people do? How do you create successful businesses? What education is needed? All of that is changed by this change in 
the, the, the way we're creating value. Yeah, that's a, a really interesting idea, particularly because I'm speaking to you from Manchester, which is now becoming one of these cities that is a hub for science, for the innovation that comes out of out of universities. Um, it is attracting young professionals who are highly educated and highly credentialed in this sort of new knowledge economy. But it is surrounded by towns where those people are not particularly attracted to and which um, have suffered um, deindustrialization and have not found a new way in the world where intangible assets are the, are the, are the sort of core thing. And, and, and that sort of brings us a little bit to your upbringing, maybe, because you grew up in, in Bury and, and you know some of these towns quite well, I suppose. Well, I grew up in Ramersbottom, actually, which has changed an awful lot since I left in the early 1980s. Um, my, my dad and my auntie's uncles all worked in cotton mills. So, and when I left, they had pretty much all closed down. My uncle, Jack, got a job as a street cleaner. My dad got a job as a meter reader. But they were lucky because a lot of people just became unemployed at that time. The buildings were grimy and the shops were closing and all that. Ramsbot in, in particular has kind of successfully reinvented itself as a sort of she-she commuter place. But a lot of the towns around Manchester haven't managed that. And as you say, we as a, a country just let down a lot of people who were hit by this big change in the economy and a big recession. And um, the policies at the time just did nothing for them. And then that got embedded. It's really hard to get out of that trap once you get into it. You work for um, you work in, in the area of public policy. You're an economist, but you work in the area of public policy. What could policymakers have done differently in the 1970s and 1980s when this deindustrialization was happening? What could they have done differently that would have meant the, the material conditions for people now in, in Oldham or in Rochdale or in Burnley <clears throat> would be different? Looking back at it, this is with the um, advantage of hindsight, it's exactly what I would recommend now for um, policymakers looking at the great inequalities that we have. And it's a minimum basic offer to everybody, particularly things like education and connectivity and now broadband wasn't around at that time, that will enable people to achieve new opportunities. Now, for some people, that's probably never going to work if you're in your 50s and your your job vanishes because of technological change and and the factory closes. Then um, it's quite hard to imagine any viable retraining for a new career in in tangible kind of sector. But certainly for young people, the money that should have been put then into different approaches to schooling and training um, is is what's needed. And actually, we know now that that works because that was what happened in London with the London Challenge under the Blair government, where a lot of money was put into schools and it turned around London schools. They're now better than the rest of the country. So you can... The London schools miracle, they call it, don't they? Exactly, yeah. And it it took money and determination. But it's feasible. So, is your hypothesis that when deindustrialization was happening, there wasn't a proactive um, push on the part of various governments to say, "Now we need to fill that gap. Now we need to fit, the, you know, the workforce of the future for the, for this changing world." There, were, there was too much neglect, essentially, at the policy level. Well, the philosophy at the time was against it. It was the early days of Mrs. Thatcher's government, and everything was um, being left to the miracle of the market. And so the idea was that if you gave people a small enterprise allowance, if they became unemployed, they'd set up a small business. Again, um, you need, first of all, you need skills for a lot of these small businesses that themselves require training. You can't just become a plumber overnight. And um, 
for the easier ones to get into, like cafes or uh, retail, um, you need a thriving economy for those to succeed. And that wasn't the case at the time in Oldham or, or Bolton. Yeah. When I visit some of those towns, it seems like there is a a thriving economy in relatively cheap retail, um, restaurants, takeaways, hairdressers, lots of these kind of basic services, or the basic amenities are there. But what the local economy seem to lack is any sort of higher level employment. So the young people have a choice. Do I go into Manchester to try and get those jobs? And there aren't that many of them in Manchester. Or do I move to, move to London or, or whatever? You know, that's someone who might have done really well at school. You must have given some of your thought to how do you get really high quality jobs in some of these towns or smaller cities in the UK that currently are very reliant on effectively low wage industries? Yeah, and it's it's not just in the northwest, of course. There are other parts of the country, including around um, uh, Cambridge, because all thriving cities have these pockets of deep um, inequality and, and, and left behind places. So it's not just a north-south thing. And it requires an, a number of things to be put in place. So one of the problems is that since the austerity era, public services have contracted their footprint. So things like magistrates courts shutting, small hospitals, um, colleges, police stations, all of which provided solid middle-class jobs in those places. They've all gone, they've all been concentrated in the cities. It's not terrible to be a commuter town for Manchester, but you need two things for that. You need horizons of people who've got the education that that's something that they can do. You also need um, the transport, which is actually there a lot there with the tram. And you need um, a big enough cluster of jobs in the city itself. And so the other piece of the jigsaw for me is actually sorting out intercity transport in the north. And we know what a joke that has been over the years. But if that worked, it would create in the north of England a single jobs market. So graduate couples could envision their entire career being somewhere in the north. They wouldn't have to keep moving. Or um, people would know that if they stayed there after university, they'd have a lot of options for, their, for the rest of their career. And you must have heard people say that the, the distance across those northern cities is similar to the central line, um, smaller than Crossrail. So we've got all of that in London. London's that kind of job market because of the transport. So that money has to go there in the north. And one of the problems with people in the Treasury or Department for Transport thinking about that investment is that they can add up, but they can't multiply. And what I mean by that is that they can they add up what's already there but they can't see the potential for um, kind of non-linear increase in these opportunities and the depth of the labour market. Even though that's exactly what's happened in London. I mean, in Mike Emmerich's book, he talks about the enormous, which I think you might have edited or even commissioned. Yeah, he talks about the enormous investment that was going into the underground in the 1970s and 1980s, which is 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 paying off in right now in ways that people don't realize how long that sort of how long of a horizon that investment had you you after you went to oxford and you went to harvard you were at the treasury for a brief time and when you're quoted in seb payne's book you talk about how a lot of civil servants making economic policy haven't lived 
in the north and don't understand how bad the infrastructure is. The sort of year-on-year transport spending might be similar, but they don't understand how how bad the the tracks are and the connections are and how bad the congestion is in certain pinch points and that kind of thing. How badly has the north been served compared to the south when it comes to sort of basic transport infrastructure? Um, Pretty badly, and it's partly the way the Treasury thinks about the cost-benefit analysis, which omits the potential for transformative change when they're thinking about the benefits and and where might you concentrate resources and concentrate policies to bring that about. And it's partly also political decisions and um, ministers who are elected from southern constituencies um, making those decisions about where to put the investment. So a while ago, I did a paper with Marianne Sensier at the University of Manchester, and we looked at the benefit cost ratios for public transport projects And there were a lot of high ones in the north, a lot of moderate ones in the south of the country or around London. And the ones that got approved were the ones around London, not the ones in the north. So we all thought the Northern Wall MPs would make a difference to that. And actually, um, that doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah, what's your current take on... We've been doing this levelling up agenda for... I suppose it's actually two and a half years since the the Conservative majority in the 2019 general election. What is your current take as an economist on the levelling up efforts made by this government? What levelling up efforts made by this government? What has there been that you can point to? Well, I, I suppose I suppose what they've what they've done mostly so far is these pots of money, 20, ten million to Bolton, fifteen million to Stockport, those kind of initiatives. That's what it's made so far, hasn't it? It's been small pots of money for which they make places compete against each other and um, with the odds stacked against the places that need it the most. So there's been no serious money and there's been the, the, the cheaper way of doing it is devolving powers and there's been no devolution. One of your, one of your colleagues on, on, on the website for your department wrote about how the, the competition system means that it's often not the places who most need the money who get the money, it's the places who are most able to put a good bid together, which might actually be quite the opposite of the, pe- of the, of the places that most need the money. So, so there, there are some basic flaws in the design of, of, of that agenda, is that correct? Absolutely. Now, I want to ask you about what a better agenda would look like. I asked this to Mike Emmerich when I interviewed him, and his book has this kind of theme of kind of doing the right things at scale for a very long time. And I think he's kind of referring to the kind of investment that's gone into London's public transport system, for example. And he, and he would favour the same up here, and he would favour the same in education. Perhaps your perspective is a little bit more about productivity or the, or, or the kind of bits of economic analysis that you focus on. What would you be doing if you had a real say in, in the government's levelling up efforts? I do think it takes significant investment and more devolution of decision-making authority. So the mayors have recently asked for more say over FE, which is completely right, because it's not that they can plan better, and indeed it would be a bit alarming if they thought they could plan in a very directive way what skills are needed, but they've got much better information about their own area. So it's that loss of the, the know-how, the kind of granular knowledge about, about different places that we've, we've lost out of the system. It's not, it's not rocket science, it's, it's money and power. And all of that has been sucked out of other parts of the country, withdrawn to London over time, we're very centralised. Um, but it does, as, you know, as Mike said to you, it does take a long time for these things to pay off. So what we also need is a kind of vision that 
um, city fathers as they all were had in the Victorian times or the 1930s and were planning for many decades ahead. They intended that these would be great cities 100 years from now. And that's the kind of horizon they had. But we've got a horizon of the next tweet. <laughs> How much more money are we talking now? Because one um, think tank, I think it might have been IPPR North, thought that the level of investment required to truly level up the UK would be similar to what was required when the GDR collapsed and, and, and Germany was reunified. Uh, that's an awful lot of money. Um, and it's and it's you know and the money is still being invested today in Germany. So, is there a figure you can put on it, or is there a, like ten times more than they're putting up at the moment? Or how do you think about the scale of the investment required for this challenge? I haven't thought about an actual figure, but it is an order of magnitude. Um, I mean, the GDR example is a good one because there was a political commitment and a vision of one nation, and they put their money where their mouth is. Um, I think the, the the bright spot is that. Public investment crowds in private investment, to use the jargon, and so some of that money would come from the private sector once there started being some evidence of that economic momentum being generated. So it would all be taxpayers. And Diane, you need to tell us about productivity because you work in an, uh, a department that focuses on productivity, or at least some of your work is, is, is based on that. You talk um, to Seb in his book about the long tail on productivity. So in the UK, I think that means we have some companies and industries that are extremely economically productive, i.e. the amount of effort that goes in per hour or per day gets enormous financial rewards. And, and obviously, we know productivity is crucial for wages, it's crucial for growth, it's crucial for living standards. And But then there's a very long tail, i.e. there are a lot of industries and a lot of companies where productivity is actually very unimpressive or is very poor. Can you tell us a bit more about that concept and particularly how it might apply to some of the towns and cities in the north that we've been talking about? Productivity is um, basically what do you get out in terms of economic value for what you put in, in terms of uh, labour and, and capital as well, capital investment. Um, so it's a really straightforward concept and it does it is what enables living standards to increase over time so we've had uh, over the decades huge increases in productivity and a quality of life that's immeasurably better in many ways than it used to be just in terms of <clears throat> how much healthier we are how much more convenience we have in life so it's a really important concept the evidence at the moment is that there are some companies that are pulling further and further ahead of all the rest, that long tail, in terms of their productivity and their profitability. Um, and a lot of it seems linked to this point we started on with about intangible assets and using digital tools. They're much better at using data, delivering services around the stuff that they produce if they're in manufacturing. They've got some kind of secret source in terms of how do they manage the business, how do they organise production, how do they empower people in the workforce in ways that we don't completely understand. And that's what I'm trying to research at the moment so that you can carry those lessons over to others. Uh, we talked about the schools example, and I think that's quite an interesting one here because one of the ways they got schools to improve across London was by putting head teachers into schools that were succeeding. So they just learned about those organizational aspects of it. And it may be that there is just that kind of know-how, that experience is, is really important. And when it comes to individual areas, is it possible to say that there are some towns and cities that are much more productive than others or, or certain industries in those towns and cities? It, should local leaders 
be thinking about productivity a lot more than they are. So it's just not, not just how many people have got jobs, what's our unemployment rate, which is a very basic economic measure, but actually how many of the people who've got jobs are sort of productive enough that their standard of living is going to increase in a meaningful way. I think that is an important indicator, um, and partly because it does help all of the um, you know, non-higher uh, value parts of the economy. And there are lots of places that are very affluent and don't look very productive because they're like those you know, Surrey villages where people live, but nobody works there. They commute into London. That's not a bad, that's not a bad outcome. So the kind of geography of thinking about this is quite complicated. It's where people work and where people live. Um, but basically, the more good jobs and the more people get paid for those jobs, the better. So it's not just the number, it's, it's the quality and, and the working conditions as well that matter. And final question, Diane. Will you ever be end up living back in Ramsbottom or back in Bury in your lifetime? Are you gonna Are you gonna re- make the return to the north? I can see returning to the north, but I'm a city city girl, so um, it would be in, into Manchester itself if I do. It'll have to be Manchester. Um, Diane Coyle, thank you very much for for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Sunday episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mail. If you like this kind of conversation and you want to get more depth on topics like these about regional economics and about how the economy is changing in the north, please consider subscribing to The Mail. It's £7 a month or it's £70 a year. You will get four emails a week from us, including political analysis, conversations like the one we've just had. You'll hear about the latest news in Greater Manchester and you'll get the brand of journalism that we've been developing over the past couple of years. Thank you so much for listening and have a lovely rest of your weekend.